Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew and chapter 6. I'm going to review just a little bit, and then I'm going to read our text here for this morning. We've been looking at what is typically called the Lord's Prayer as we delve into our core values here at Birds Terrace Baptist Church, and one of them certainly is prayer. And so we're going to kind of park here for a little while, look at some various aspects, even beyond what is known as the Lord's Prayer, and I really prefer the disciples' prayer. As a disciple came to Jesus and they heard Him praying, they watched Him pray, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray like that. And so Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we've been reminded that we approach God as our Father, a Father who cares for us, a Father who loves us. And we ask that His name be honored. We acknowledge the fact that He is a holy, righteous God, and we're requesting that that holiness be reflected in our life, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our thoughts. And then we pray God, we ask that your kingdom will come. God, we are asking that your kingship and your authority be ever expanding through the spread of the gospel and that it be ever more intensive in our own lives through submissive obedience to your will. God, we pray that the gospel will be effective. God, use me in spreading the gospel. And God, would you just take my will and bend it to yours? We should ask that God's will be accomplished. It really boils down to, God, your will be done or my will be done. And we're saying, God, we pray that your moral will, your commands would be accomplished in my life and the lives of others. And those times when we're just uncertain exactly what God's will is, God, we pray your will be done. We pray that there would be clear, unmistakable direction for us. And we ask God to provide for our daily needs. And that entails initially us admitting our needs, and then it entails us trusting and believing that God is truly the only one who can meet our needs. And so, as one of the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. Can we, in essence, this morning do that? Can we come to this text and come to our God and say, God, Teach us. Teach us to pray. Continuing in our text in verses 12 through 15. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, as we come to this text this morning, God, even as has been true for these last couple of weeks, this is 
This is a familiar text. Maybe one of the most familiar texts in Scripture. And Father, I think sometimes when we come to a familiar text, we can just almost be a little ho-hum. Maybe check out a little bit. And Father, I pray that we would not do that this morning. God, would you teach us? Teach us how to pray. Father, I think there are times, certainly in my own life and for many of us here this morning, that we tend to magnify the offenses of others against us. We tend to minimize our own sin. And we tend to often not grasp your amazing, amazing grace and mercy. God, would you help us to get that right this morning? Lord, help us to see you as the amazing, almighty, merciful, gracious God that you are. And may our response be a heart of praise. May we see the magnitude of our own sin that has been forgiven if we are indeed a believer. And Father, I pray that in the text that we'll look at today, that you would truly instruct us, help us. May our prayer life be in line with what Jesus is teaching here, and may we honor you in that way. And we pray this in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question here this morning, and it's just us, okay? So let's be honest. How many of you have sinned this past week. All right. I think about everyone's honest here this morning, okay? In some way, in some form, we have sinned this past week. It could have been a thought that was wrong. It could have been an action that was wrong, an attitude that was wrong. Something within us, we have violated God's moral will for us. And I trust that there have been multiple times this week as we have sinned, that we have confessed those sins to God. We've been honest with Him, and that really gets at the heart of this next section, that we need to ask God to forgive us. We need to ask Him. And the reason is that sin is a reality in the life of a believer, It's just simply a reality. In this text, Matthew uses the word debts. I don't know if it has connection with the fact that Matthew was a tax collector. His mind thought in a a financial way, and he's using a term that would have been common. But Luke helps clear this up uh, definitively for us. Because in Luke's account of this, he says, "...and forgive us our sins." We know clearly that Matthew and Luke, as well as John's account of this, excuse me, Mark's account of this, that we, um, that they are speaking of sins. The things that we do wrong, and as Luke says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Forgive us our sins. Sin is a reality in the life of a believer. I think we've just acknowledged that, right? 
When we acknowledge, yes, I have sinned in the last several days, we realize experientially that we struggle with sin. So sin is a reality in the life of a believer, and cleansing is needful in the life of a believer. Now let's kind of dive into this just a little bit. Make sure we're clear on this, all right? There is the reality in the life of a believer of complete pardon. Complete pardon. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation, none, absolutely none whatsoever. We are not condemned. We are no longer subject to the wrath of God. For those who are in Christ Jesus... One who has been saved, one who has uh, believed and trusted in Jesus Christ alone. Believers are recipients of God's judicial forgiveness. And because of our trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation, God as judge, He renders the verdict. And we looked at this a few weeks ago as not guilty. We are no longer guilty before God. And why is that? It's simply because of Jesus Christ. There is no other reason. It's because of His sacrifice on the cross. It's because of our faith and trust in Him alone. It's because of the grace that has been bestowed upon us that we are completely forgiven. You know, there would be some who would take the the vantage point that as a believer, that you no longer sin, and we just know that not to be true, and we need God's continual forgiveness. So there is a need for continual cleansing. We've been a recipient of complete pardon, but there's a need for continual cleansing. And in the text here, it says, forgive Just send away, dismiss, wipe off is the idea of the word there. And the Lord here is not speaking of our forgiveness at salvation, but He's speaking of that relation between us and our God. And that needs continual attention, repair, if you will. We need to have a right relationship with God. This is not repeatedly getting saved over and over and over again. That's not what this text is teaching. Because once we have truly trusted in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation, that is a once and for all decision. But as a believer, because we do sin, we have a need to regularly come to our Father and agree with Him, confess our sin before Him, and know that we have a right relationship with Him. And that's exactly what 1 John 1, 8 and 9 addresses. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, John is pretty plain speaking in the book of 1 John. He just lays out some things clearly, unmistakably, and he says, if as a believer you conclude that you no longer grapple and deal with sin, you are deceiving yourself. You are gravely, gravely mistaken. What he says, if as believers we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess. 
I think most of us realize that the word confess means to agree with God, to say the same thing that God would say. That we're not trying to dismiss our sin, excuse our sin in any way, shape, or form, but we're genuinely, earnestly, transparently saying, what I said was sin. The thought I had was sin. I can't blame somebody else for it. I can't excuse it. It was wrong. It violated your word, God, and I'm agreeing with you about that. And God, would you help me to have victory over that? That's confession of sin, to agree with God. You know, I think we live in a culture where it's, it seems increasingly common to blame somebody else for wrongdoing. Increasingly common not to take personal responsibility You know, it's so-and-so's fault. It's the culture in which I was reared. It is the lack of education that I received. It's the lack of of economic uh, ability to increase myself, whatever it may be. And folks, as believers, we just have to take personal responsibility for our sin and say what I did was wrong before the sight of God. It is sin and nothing less than that. You know, I believe that when it comes to confessing sins, that private sins need to be confessed privately before God. But when we sin against God and others, that we need to make it right and confess it in sense with others, ask them to forgive us as wide as the effect of our sin would go. If it's just another person, we go to that person. If it's a, against a two or three people, we go to those individuals. It's as wide as our sin is against other people. And as I've mentioned to you before, I think it's easier for us most times to say, God, I confess my sin. God, forgive me. It's a little bit harder when we have to go to other flesh and blood and look them in the eye and say, what I said, what I did was wrong. Will you forgive me? And the text says in 1 John that He is faithful and He's just to forgive our sins. God is a faithful God. It speaks to His consistency, His reliability, His dependability. And He is just. Why is He just to pass over, if you will, the sin of a believer? It's because, as I mentioned a moment ago, Through Jesus Christ, our sin has been dealt with. Past, present, future. Every sin that we have committed, ever will commit in this life, if you are a believer, has been dealt with judicially by Jesus Christ. We're no longer under condemnation. So that is why God can, uh, for us as believers, justly forgive our sin because it's already been dealt with. This is not a whimsical decision on the part of God. This is not a feel-good act on the part of God. You know, in essence, I'm in a good mood today. I'll let this one slide. No, He is just because as a believer, you have been declared righteous in the sight of God. God is just in forgiving our sin. So He's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He removes the uncleanness. He removes the defilement of sin. 
You know, David speaks to this in Psalm 32. A little longer text, but bear with me as I read this. We know the story of David. He morally sinned with Bathsheba. He called for her husband's death. He was a murderer. He was immoral. And it says, these are David's own words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, let's pause there for a moment. David, for about the the span of a year, held out against God, would not confess his sin before God, stubbornly held on to that sin. And when he says, I kept silent, I would not get right with God, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. It had a physical effect on him. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I think most of us can relate to that here this morning, that when we've stubbornly refused to get right with God, that it's just as though God's hand is pressing down upon us saying, get right, get right, get right. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He starts out and he says, blessed is the one. There is a freedom that comes when we say, God, I openly, willingly, transparently confess my sin to you, whatever it may be. And When we refuse to do that, David's description would be very similar to what we would experience. There's guilt. There's the sense of God's loving hand of pressure upon us. And God just repeatedly, as though it were, just saying, get right. Come clean. And when we do, oh, There is that freedom, that blessedness of knowing that God has forgiven us. You know, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet the night before He was crucified, and He comes to Peter, and Peter says, oh, I don't need my feet washed. And Jesus tells Peter, if if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And He says, well, then, in essence, give me a bath. And Jesus says this, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. What is Jesus teaching there? He's saying, once you put your faith and trust in me, you don't need to repeat the process. But there is a process, there is a need by which, in essence, your feet need to be cleaned. You need to confess your sin. Because as we walk through this world, Our feet, in essence, get dirty. We sin. We violate God's law. And we need to experience that cleansing from God. You know, a genuine believer does not use this verse or any other teaching in the Word of God likened to this 
to say this. You know what? I'll just sin. I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want, and I can just ask God to forgive me. That's not the heart, the desire of a true believer. A true believer desires to do right, desires to please God, desires to be in fellowship with their heavenly Father. Well, we have a need as believers because we do grapple with sin to confess that sin before the Lord. But we also need to have a forgiving spirit in our life because we are saying, forgive us our sins, our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It focuses on the people relationships that we have, the people that have wronged us. Forgiveness should regularly and consistently be extended to those who have wronged us. And we need to have a forgiving spirit even when forgiveness is not requested. God, I want you to forgive me. God, I'm confessing my sin and I want you to forgive me just like I have forgiven other people. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, that smoldering resentment, bitterness, that explosive rage, wrath, that internal deep hostility, anger, that angry yelling and screaming clamor, that malicious gossip, slander, and all types of evil be put away from you. And we're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and what's the standard? As God for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And folks, this is where we have to, as I prayed at the outset of the message today, come to grips with how large our sin is, the magnitude of our sin, the greatness of our sin, the overwhelming immensity of our sin that God has forgiven us and that we turn around and with that same grace of God flowing through us, that we're willing to forgive someone else. And I get this morning that the wrongs that can be done to us in this life can be enormous and really, in our own humanness, impossible to get around. But it's through the grace of God that we come to those very, very difficult things and things that people have done to us that are horrific, maybe in some cases even unmentionable. They are just horrible, horrible sins that have been committed against us. But we need to say, God, on the basis of how you have forgiven me, I forgive others. 
I forgive what has been done to me. And we're loosing that bitterness and that anger and that wrath and letting it go. And we're experiencing the freedom that only comes in being right with God and right with other people. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 for just a moment. Because I think there can be a misunderstanding of this text, and I want to make sure we get this right. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. At an initial reading, this almost sounds like we can, we can earn the right to be forgiven. That we earn God's mercy, we earn God's grace. That's not what this text is teaching. I want to read you a quote by a commentator, John Stott, that I think will be helpful here. This certainly does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. Can you underscore that? does not earn us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives only the penitent and that one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have exaggerated, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. It is saying this, this is what I believe Jesus is teaching here, that if we come to God and say, God, I confess my sin, I'm, I'm in essence asking you to forgive me, but all the while... I'm really not expressing a penitent heart because I am just bitter and I'm angry and I'm ticked off at someone or maybe several someones. It is in essence hypocritical for us to come to God and say, God, I'm confessing my sin. I want to experience your forgiveness, but really I do not have a penitent heart. I'm not broken about my sin because I'm still hanging on to this bitterness and this anger. C.S. Lewis said this about this text. He, speaking of Jesus, doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided they are not too frightful or provided there are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. John Phillips said, mercy received must be mercy reproduced. How can we logically, consistently, or morally ask God to forgive us if we ourselves are harboring an unforgiving spirit? Thomas Manton, a Puritan writer, said, There is none so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves, for they know how gently God has dealt with them. And folks, this is where the rubber meets the road often for us in life. 
that we look at the offenses done to us by other people, no matter how immense and horrible and great those are, and we say, in essence, those are unforgivable offenses. I will not forgive. And yet we come to God, and we want God to forgive us. We must come to God with a brokenness about our anger and our bitterness and say, God, I'm struggling. God, I need your help. God, I can't do this. God, I, I don't even know sometimes if I want to do this, but I know that I should. God, by your mercy, by your grace, would you help me forgive? Would you help me let that go? That's a penitent heart. And sometimes we think that is so elusive and so impossible, but by the grace of God, it's not. And we can experience that blessedness that David talked about of just coming clean before God and really praying in this way, God, I want to confess my sin to you And I want to experience your forgiveness just as I have forgiven other people. That only comes by the grace of God. Let's look at the next aspect of what Jesus is teaching here in verse 13. It says, And lead us not a temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word lead there is the idea of bring, allow, or permit. And I think the the key term here is temptation. What is this word? What does it mean exactly? Well, the root meaning has to do with a testing or a proving. It's from that meaning that we derive the idea of a trial or a temptation of testing. And so I think the essence of this request is this. God, as I experience trials and difficulties and hardships in in this life, in the midst of that, God, would you please protect me from sinning? God, I don't want to drift in a wrong direction in my thinking. God, I, I don't want to say things that would violate your truth. God, I don't want to think things that would violate your truth. There are times in the midst of testing and trials that we can just become angry with God. God, please don't let me go that direction. God, keep me from being overwhelmed by the temptation to sin in the midst of a trial. And then I think in a larger general application It can allude to, God, just keep me from sinning in any way, shape, or form. I often, often, almost daily pray this prayer for myself and for my family and others as well. God, would you help us today say no to sinful temptation? God, would you, by your grace and by the enabling of your Spirit, Help us to walk in the Spirit today. Keep us pure in our thinking, 
in our actions, in our attitudes. And I think that's the heart of what Jesus is teaching here. God, I have a propensity to sin in my flesh. There is something within me that tugs at me and pulls against me. And God, by Your grace and by the enabling of Your indwelling Spirit, help me to say no to that tug and that pull in my life. I think Romans 6.13 captures this pretty well. I do not have this verse on the screen, but listen closely. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought uh, forth from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You know, Paul just puts it right down on the bottom shelf here. And he says this, hey, what are your instruments? We're not talking about um, a guitar or a trumpet or, uh, you know, a flute. But it's our hands, it's our feet, it's our eyes, it's our mind, it's our ears, it's our mouth. God, take every piece of me and help me to present it to you as an instrument, as a means by which I can do right and please you. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 6. I want us to look at uh, quickly at a passage in James that I think will help us with this. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no man, excuse me, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Regarding sinful temptation, God is the solution, not the problem. God's our solution. He's not the problem because God is not tempted with sin. He himself in no way, shape, or form can be tempted with evil. He is, if we can say it this way, untemptable because God is completely holy. He is completely pure and sinless. And secondly, God does not tempt us with sin. God is not going to dangle sinful enticement before us and say, hey, I wonder what they'll do. Let's just see how far they'll go. That is not what God does. That's not in the character of God. And James clearly lays that out. Let no one say. The idea is we can't rationalize that this temptation comes from God. Let no one rationalize when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Because God, as a holy God, tempts no one. And as I said earlier, we struggle with this. We, we tend towards the blame game. It's someone else's fault. It's my spouse's fault that I think this way and act this way. It's my children's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's my coworker's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my teacher's fault. And instead of looking around us, we've got to look within us and look at our own heart. You know, it would be if, you have, if you're just incredibly overweight and you say, you know what, it's just little Debbie's fault. You know, those Swiss, those Swiss cake rolls, 
you know, if they just, if they weren't on the shelf, or those, you know, those peanut butter bars, if they, if they just weren't on the shelf, if those Oreo cookies, as I went down the aisle, if they weren't on the shelf, I would not have this problem. But it is the grocery store's fault. It's the manufacturer's fault that they're there. And we say, that's crazy. And you're right. But we do that with our sin. We blame circumstances. We blame others. We are not defeated by sin. Please hear this. We are not defeated by sin. We are disobedient. Romans 6 tells us that sin no longer has domination over us. You do not have to sin. I do not have to sin. We do so because we are willingly disobedient. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And regarding our sinful temptation, really the problem is in our own heart. Each person, it speaks to the universality of temptation, is tempted. It's a continuous, repeated process. And it involves, depending on which translation you have, either the word lust or desire, same thing. Which in and of itself is a neutral word. It's just a strong desire for something. But in this context, it's a strong desire to sin. It comes from the the flesh that resides within us. That unredeemed part of humanity are because we're, we're still reside in a human body and live in a sinful world. It's all part of that, and it's a desire. It's a deep longing to do wrong. Mark reminds us in chap- Mark chapter 7, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from Not our circumstances, not our culture, not other people, but from within. And they defile a person. You know, sometimes we might be tempted to make a comment like, and even a thought that we might have, we might even verbalize this, but we might say something like, I I can't believe I did that. Or, speaking of someone else, I can't believe They did that. You know, that that wasn't me that did that. Well, then it begs the question, who was it? You know, that wasn't really me, and truly, it really is us. Because it is revealed what's going on in our heart, as ugly as that may be. And James says that we're We're drawn away, we're enticed by desire, and it's our own heart's issue. The word own there is unique and individualized. Dr. Jim Berg, he coins this as designer lust. Not that they're unique to mankind, but it is a sinful pull in your heart that is immense. It may not be true in my heart, but it is yours. And what's true in my heart may not be for you. It's unique to you in the sense that it is a strong pull and tug that you grapple with. And it may not be the same that someone else grapples with. And he uses a couple of words. He says, we're drawn away, we're lured There's an inner desire, there's an inner craving, 
and then we are enticed. It would be like this. Um, I've never really done any hunting in my life or trapping, but if you set bait for an animal that you're going to try to trap, or you go fishing and you have a, a lure, or you have live bait on a hook, you know there's something in eight within an animal, within a fish, that they want to eat. There's an inner desire. And then you are luring, you are drawing them away to ensnare them. For us, we deal with our flesh, sometimes an inner desire. And then there are particular things that we look at and grapple with, and they are an enticement to us that draw us away. You know, for you and I, we're not tempted, I would think most of the time, to eat earthworms. Right? They don't seem real appealing to us. But you put that on a hook, you throw it out in the water, and that looks like steak to a fish. And that, st- and that fish puts its mouth around that worm, and then there's a sudden jerk, and that hook comes through its the side of its its mouth, and it's ensnared. And that's often how sin works. It looks good. It smells good. It's enticing. We feel like, hey, I've got to do this. This looks enjoyable. This looks pleasurable. And the Bible tells us, the Bible is completely honest about sin. And it says that there is pleasure in sin for a season, but then it ends in destruction. There is no long-lasting pleasure or value in sin whatsoever. And so it goes from an inner craving to an enticement to being snared or entrapped. I mentioned Dr. Jim Berg. He said this, our biggest problem then is not the environment in which we've been reared. That's counterculture thinking right now. It's not the evil that has been done to us by others. It's not the limitations we feel so acutely. Our biggest problem is a heart that wants its own way in opposition to God's way. And that's what we deal with. And that's what we're praying. God, please, please keep me from sinning. God, please keep me from yielding to sinful temptation. And James reminds us that yielding to sinful temptation results in great harm. There is a desire that we've talked about, that lust. And then James says that that desire gives birth to sin. How does that work? Is temptation, is temptation in and of itself sin? No. We all deal with temptation. Jesus himself was tempted. Temptation in and of itself is not sin, but this is where the, we step over the line is when temptation meets our will And our will says, yes, I will give in. Yes, I will partake. Yes, I will cross over the line. The Bible says that it's at that point that that desire gives birth to sin. It's when we give in that it's sin. It's when we yield that it's sin. 
And when that sin is fully grown, when it continues, it results in death. Now, for the believer in Jesus Christ, that death is not an eternal spiritual death, but I think it can certainly mean a physical death. It can certainly allude to great harm, great destruction in the life of a believer. There is a pregnancy, if you will. There's a conception that takes place. And when death is brought forth, that pregnancy does not yield in life, but it yields in death. You know, that was literally true for Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit individually, separately. God said, you're dead. What an illustration that must have been to the first century church. Prominent people in the church, when they gathered the next Lord's Day, and they had to announce Ananias and Sapphira are no longer with us because they lied to the Holy Spirit of God, I would imagine that was a pretty sobering gathering and probably very sobering for some time to come as they reflected on this. The way of the transgressor is hard. And folks, this is my earnest, earnest plea with us today. That we pray this prayer. God, keep me from sinful doing. God, keep me from doing wrong. God, keep me, deliver me from evil. And that very well could be the evil one. It could be Satan. God, keep me from saying yes to sinful temptation. And that that is ever mindful on our heart. And that we're pleading with God, God, I need a pure heart. God, I want to do what's right. And God, I have these propensities to yield to my flesh. But God, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Please help me. And folks, you and I both hear far too often of people who are prominent and people who have no prominence whatsoever, but we know personally who have failed in this area, who would claim the name of Christ, and maybe at one point in time they were vibrantly living for God, but somewhere they took a left-hand turn and they just bought into human thinking. They bought into human thinking that is opposed to the Word of God. And they said, you know what? I, I'm just going to go this direction. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of taste it, see how it goes. And they go a little further and a little further. And then all of a sudden, their family is destroyed. Their personal life is destroyed. Their testimony is destroyed. And folks, we have got to beg God that God would help us to live pure, righteous lives before Him. It is possible because of Jesus Christ, because we are loosed from sin. Sin no longer has domain over us. Now, we live in a sin-cursed world, and it is all around us. And I think that's why this prayer needs to be ever-present on our lips, that we're praying, God, help me to walk close with you. God, help me. Please help me not to yield to sin. 
in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions, that we are walking with God and doing that which pleases Him. And I know this is an old saying, but it is still true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will cost you more than you want to pay, and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. And we are always able to go to God and confess our sin. But folks, there are consequences of sin that we often cannot escape. And sometimes we can go down a road so far into sin and it grabs a hold of us and it brings such destruction and harm and ruin that we can experience God's forgiveness. But just as King David lived with multiple consequences for his wrongdoing, We might have to live with multiple consequences of our sin. And you don't want to be there and I don't want to be there. And by God's grace, that we would live lives that are pure and clean and right before Him, that we are used by Him for the furtherance of the gospel, and that we just serve Him faithfully. So as Jesus teaches us to pray, I pray that we would be eager students that we would learn. And my heart's prayer for our church is this, that, that we don't just, uh, over these three weeks here, say, well, yeah, this has been kind of good to rehearse the Lord's Prayer. Huh. Yeah, well, we wonder what's next. But that we're practicing this. And as you get up tomorrow morning, you are modeling your prayer after this prayer and Tuesday morning, and Thursday morning, and next Saturday, and next month, and next year. And not to say that every aspect of this prayer has to be prayed every time we pray, but that we're regularly incorporating this model prayer into our prayer life, and that we're praying just like Jesus teaches us to pray. Oh, Father, would you help us Father, we need your help. We are needy, needy people this morning. God, if most of us are honest, prayer is something that that truly needs to be developed and grown in our life. Lord, help us to pray as Jesus teaches us to pray. And as we've specifically looked at this morning, that we would be quick to confess our sins. And in that process, we would be quick to forgive those who have sinned against us. We would see the enormity of our sin that has been forgiven. And that we would by your grace, be able and willing to forgive others. Lord, I pray that we would regularly and consistently pray, oh God, God, please keep me from yielding to sinful temptation. Lord, help me not to take that step where my will meets sin and my will caves. And in essence, as James tells us, that sin is born. Lord, I pray that at that juncture, by your grace, that you would help us to say no. 
that it would really, in essence, be a sweet time of worship, and that we would run to Your Word, that we would run to Christ for help, that we would run uh, to truths that we know of in, in Your Word, God, and that we would pull those out and rehearse them and speak truth to ourselves, and that, God, You would be honored and glorified. Lord, in these areas, God, we need your help. This is where we live, and we want to do so rightly. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.